Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion, the National Science Radio Show. I'm Erin Passmore. On this edition, we serve up a feast of science treats. Chill out with Mark West as we hear about the natural wonders of Iceland. And Tilly Boleyn chats with Dr James Padley about matters of the heart. But first up, here's the news with Patrick Ruby. First of all, in stellar news, a dwarf galaxy is giving birth to new stars. The event was captured by the Hubble Space Telescope. Images from the telescope show reddish patches of new stars forming behind veils of dust, together with bluish-white clusters of young stars already created. The galaxy, called NGC 4449, lies 12.5 million light-years away in the constellation Canis Venatici. The astronomers believe the star formation might have been triggered by the merger of NGC 4449 with another galaxy. The stars are developing at an extremely fast rate, and astronomers believe if it continues at this speed, the galaxy will run out of the gas necessary to build them in about one billion years. And now, from active galaxies to energy on Earth. A new vibration-powered generator could be used for wireless sensors. It generates electrical energy from vibrations and movements present within its environment. The device is ten times as powerful as any other of its kind and is only one cubic centimetre large. It has been designed to power wireless sensors that monitor the condition of industrial plants, but could also potentially be used in wireless self-powered tyre sensors and self-powered pacemakers. This technology could augment the activity of existing batteries or replace them altogether, which could be useful for sensors which are embedded in structures and have no physical contact with the outside world. The generator was developed by a team of scientists at the School of Electronics and Computer Sciences at the University of Southampton, UK, as part of the Vibration Energy Scavenging Project. More developments in machine technology. A new rat brain robot has been designed to navigate mazes. The robot contains a functional model of place cells, the neurons that help real-life rats to map their environment. These cells are found in the hippocampus and are activated when the animals recognise a familiar location. The machine could recognise places it had already visited, distinguish between similar locations and figure out where it was in a maze just after a single training session. This was the first time these types of mapping tests were carried out in a real environment with actual experiments used on real rats. It was developed by Alfredo Weizenfeld, a roboticist at the ITAM Technical Institute in Mexico City, who believes it could be used to inspire new approaches to learning and simultaneous localization and mapping in robots. Crossing over from robots to real animals. New orangutan experiments are testing an old fable. Orangutans were given a tube one quarter filled with water with a peanut floating on top, but just out of reach. The animals filled the tube with mouthfuls of water in order to float the peanut to the top of the tube so they could eat it. At the start of the experiment, it took them nine minutes on average to figure out the trick, but by the end of the trial, they could do it in 30 seconds. The idea was based on an Aesop fable, where a thirsty crow finds a pitcher of water but can't reach the water level because it is too low. The crow puts stones in the pitcher to raise the water level so it can reach the water. 
The experiment was designed by a team of researchers at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. Now from floating on the surface to plunging into the deep. Our gut parasites might have come from the deep ocean. The genomes of human and animal pathogenic bacteria have been compared to non-pathogenic bacteria from deep sea vents and little difference has been found. It seems life on the ocean floor might have provided bacteria with the survival skills necessary to become pathogens. The deep sea vent bacteria frequently lose genes, mutate and acquire new genes because of the shifting chemical environments in these vents, just as pathogenic bacteria frequently turn over genes to evade their host's immune systems. The study was conducted by a team of scientists at the Japan Agency for Marine Earth Science and Technology, Yakusuka, Japan. It is not yet known how deep sea bacteria were able to migrate into animal hosts. And finally, more extinct animals exposed. The largest bird ever discovered has had its flight secrets revealed. The now extinct Argentavis magnificens lived around 6 million years ago, weighed about 140 pounds, that's about 70 kilograms, and was the size of a light aircraft. Researchers of the Texas Tech University in Lubbock have used simulation software to study the aerodynamics of the bird. They believe its muscles could not have been big enough for it to fly by flapping. Instead, it would have glided by catching lifts on thermal air currents and updrafts. Taking off would have required a running start, but once airborne, it easily travelled 200 miles, or 320 kilometres, in a day, reaching top speeds of 67 miles per hour, or 107 kilometres an hour. Thanks, Patrick. Now here's Mark West with some Nordic novelty. You're as cold as ice. You're willing to sacrifice our love. There is a surefire way to cure yourself of boredom, joblessness, and that nagging feeling that you should possibly be doing more with yourself and more with your time and engaging with reality, and that's by doing the exact opposite of that and escaping reality. For an Australian, there really isn't anywhere further away that you could go than Iceland. It's been a dream of mine to go to Iceland for many years, partially because of this escapism, but also because everything I'd heard about this place suggested that I may like it. Forward-thinking, a little bit socialist, very clean, although ironically, because it has only around 300,000 people and a large aluminium industry, it has one of the largest carbon footprints per capita in the world. It also has attractive and reserved Nordic people. It has stunningly beautiful and interesting scenery. And it also is a bit of a science novelty. For me, I find it fascinating that of the 103,000 square kilometres of land that makes up Iceland, 11% is covered in glaciers, 64% is wasteland, cool lava flows mainly, giving it a desolate moon-like appearance, and 2% by lakes, leaving only around 23% for vegetation. This fact and its isolation mean that there are relatively few people living in Iceland, 
And for me, to do a podcast about Iceland gives me the chance to play this song that I would never play normally in a podcast. VIP. Let's kick it. Perhaps it is a virtue of the amazing geothermal activity in the country, mainly due to its position straddling the Eurasian and American plates, which are slowly moving apart. But Iceland has very progressive policies regarding energy usage. Perhaps it is also because if our worst fears of global warming come true, then it won't be long before the massive Icelandic glaciers melt. Within 200 years, our tour guide mentioned, which would not only be an environmental catastrophe in itself, but could cause unknown flooding, avalanches and displacement for Icelanders. The country is setting itself up to be carbon neutral. Renewable energy makes up 72% of Iceland's energy portfolio, well ahead of the next best in the world, New Zealand, on 57%. The importation of coal stopped more than 50 years ago after the end of World War II. The energy economy is based around hydroelectricity and geothermal power plants, and whilst it is fortunate that Iceland is in a position to take advantage of its geography for this purpose, perhaps things would be different if they were on top of oil like Norway or the Middle East, or coal and uranium like Australia, although Australia does have an awful lot of sun for solar power. At least it's aiming to be a world leader in other renewable sources. In a world where oil security is becoming more and more important, firms such as the Icelandic New Energy Limited are aiming to create the world's first hydrogen economy, with a number of buses in the country's capital Reykjavik already powered by the renewable source. The aim is to eventually power the country's large fishing fleet with hydrogen, and this is quite difficult as many of the ships are quite old. As the technology is new, it is also quite expensive, and being a small isolated country, it may be difficult for the Icelandic hydrogen industry to compete internationally. And so therefore, it will take a while before the costs reduce enough for hydrogen power to be commonplace. Now, the government even offsets each of its overseas trips by planting trees to soak up the CO2 through the Iceland Carbon Fund. Can you imagine how many trees the Howard government would have to plant to offset all the Prime Minister's trips to the UK to see the cricket at Lord's? Imagine how many trees Tony Blair would have to plant to offset his recent farewell tour to Africa. Iceland are aiming to minimise their carbon footprint through renewable energy developments and through programs such as the Green Flag Program, in which schools are awarded prizes for meeting their own environmental goals. One primary school, just a day trip out of Reykjavik, built a dam to generate electricity to provide renewable power for local greenhouses. They also built windmills and captured solar energy. I think the most environmentally conscious thing that my primary school did was plant a couple of trees in a new garden. But this was only after it had lost half its area for a new motorway to be constructed. 87% of Iceland's heating comes from geothermal energy, and the exportation of geothermal know-how is one of the largest ways that Iceland contributes to foreign aid. The slight smell of sulphur in the bathrooms is the only downside. One of the really fascinating developments in Iceland in recent times has been the interest internet giants such as Yahoo and Google have shown in moving server farms to the country, due to the fact that the energy is cheap and renewable. 
Server farms use up enormous amounts of energy, mostly because the computers consume ridiculously large quantities for cooling. This is a real problem, as if the servers go down, this has the potential to produce catastrophic results for world business and commerce. With the world linked up through the internet, there would be no problem locating server farms in Iceland, although a new submarine cable would need to be laid. The fact that much of the land is not occupied also helps. This is being seen by locals as a much more environmentally friendly way of making money and creating jobs compared to the aluminium industry, which currently generates much of Iceland's wealth and creates the surprising effect that per capita, Iceland is one of the world's largest carbon emitters. Iceland was not always so forward-thinking. Studies have shown that around the time of settlement, around 1,000 years ago, the country was 30% covered in forest. These days, due to erosion, farming, grazing and other human uses, that figure is closer to 1%. However, around 1 million trees are being planted each year through the Icelandic Forestry Commission. Another really interesting feature of the landscape is the presence of geysers. The English word actually comes from geyser, an erupting spring in Iceland. A geyser is a hot spring that erupts periodically, shooting a column of hot water and steam into the air. About 1,000 exist worldwide, and they are formed by surface water gradually seeping down through the ground until it meets rock heated by magma. The heated water then rises back towards the surface. As the geyser fills, the water at the top of where the water is reaching the surface cools down and presses down on the hotter water beneath. This superheats the water at the bottom due to the pressure from the top, and eventually temperatures near the bottom of the geyser rise to a point where boiling begins and the steam rises explosively to the top, giving us the geyser show. Thanks to Mark West for that story. You can hear more of Mark at mrscienceshow.com.
listening to Diffusion, Community Radio's National Science Show, brought to you across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Next up, Tilly Boleyn and Dr James Padley chat about heart rates and the brain. Now joining me on the line is Dr James Padley. Hello James. Good morning, how are you? I'm very, very well. Now you are just a new doctor. You have just handed in your PhD and had it accepted, is that right? 
That's right, yes, after a long wait. After <laughs> a very long wait. Congratulations. Thank but you. Just for our listeners, uh, could you explain, I mean, you're a science researcher. What what does that mean on a day-to-day basis? Sure. Well, um, it's quite funny because when I first started out, um, I did an honours project at university and before then I thought that scientists just drank a lot of tea and did a lot of deep thinking, things like that. <laughs> but it turns out that researchers are actually very busy people and um, on a day-to-day basis, your time sort of split up between what we call wet lab work and dry lab work. Wet lab work is where you basically get your hands dirty, so um, you're in in the laboratory, you may be staining uh, tissue from brains or different organs around the body looking for proteins um, and looking at cells down the microscope, things like that. Um, You may be measuring blood pressure or um, uh, heart rate from uh, human or animal subjects. Um, And then there's dry lab work, which is basically analysing that data in order to be able to get it out to the scientific community, and that takes a lot, a lot of time and a lot of time and effort writing that thing up. So it, it's not all as glamorous as CSI and everything, where you get to run out into the field and throw your lab coat off for a, you know, a swanky, swanky outfit to go out and, you know, track killers. That, no, that doesn't happen. Not always, but there are people who really take it seriously. I remember one girl um, we used to work with always carried the um, pipette, which is what you um, <laughs> draw liquid up in her belt, just like a, like a holster oh. holstering the pipette. Yeah, wow, that, that is some, that's some geek chic, <laughs> for sure. How, how strangely... Also, what, what, what topics did you cover in your PhD? Just, just touch on one of them. Okay, um, uh, the main thing I was interested in was uh, something called heart rate variability. And um, just for the listeners, I'll try and uh, explain this in, in simple terms if I can. Um, we all know it from experience, but the basic principle is that heart rate isn't constant. So, for example... Um, if you so, see a hot guy... If you see a hot guy or a hot girl, whichever yep. way you go, yep. um, your heart rate goes up. And that's an example of your brain sending signals along two nerves that control the heart. And they control a different, few different functions, but one of them is heart rate. But there's also more subtle variations that occur while, while you and I are sitting here talking as, as mm-hmm. we speak. So, for example, you can do an experiment at home. If you just take your pulse at your wrist, which is inside and just below your thumb... Yeah, I'm doing it. You can feel that. And mm-hmm. just breathe normally... But then take a big, big, deep breath in and then blow out and keep blowing out and just see if you can feel what happens. Okay, what you might see or feel is that your heart rate goes up and then goes down. Yeah, I, could, I didn't breathing. feel it got, yeah, yep. Yeah, you felt a little bit? I did feel it a little bit, but, you know, <laughs> talking to you, my heart rate's up anyway, so... <laughs> it is subtle, but um, that's an example of, of a respiratory sinus arrhythmia, we call it. Ooh, I love it when you use big words. <laughs> And, and that actually turns out they're controlled by um, specialised reflexes between the brain and the heart and they operate to sort of adjust heart rate and other functions of the heart in order to what we're doing, including breathing, activity. So um, why, why would it do it just then? Sorry, sorry to barge in. <laughs> why, okay. why, does it, why does it get faster and then slower? What, what? It's to do with what happens to your, um, your, the blood in your vessels. When you breathe, um, the blood returning to your heart changes and that's picked up by sensors which then go feed back to the brain and then compensate by adjusting heart rate. So it's all about compensation and what we call homeostasis, so keeping the, the internal environment constant. And this is um, very important, it turns out, in health and disease. So if we can measure those variations over a certain time scale, and it turns out that the more variable your heart heart rate, sorry, mm-hmm. it's associated with health. But you know, in quite a few illnesses, including heart disease and diabetes, your heart rate variability is actually reduced. And so the understanding is that somehow this is reflecting how the brain mechanisms 
are responding under different conditions and it turns out that you can be like a window into the into the brain's control of the heart by wow. using techniques yeah the body is an amazing thing and it continues to link up in ways that we never thought possible it certainly does yes well i'm glad that all of that funky research or at least that was part of it i'm sure you did a whole lot more has <laughs> just has gotten you your phd i will remember to call you doctor from now on thanks to tilly Berlin for that story and that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, you can reach us via email at diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Contributing to the program were Patrick Ruby, Tilly Berlin and Mark West. Diffusion has been produced by Ed Pollitt in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Erin Passmore. Join us for more science next week on Diffusion.